from Manufactured Myth and Ledger Domain, a Boston RPG company. Welcome to Role Player with a Thousand Faces, a podcast that examines the art and craft of tabletop role-playing games. My name is Matt Yancic, and I'm a role player that's been running RPGs for 30 years, but also a teacher that uses them in the classroom. I see collaborative storytelling as a powerful bridge toward promoting understanding and building empathy in our everyday lives. After all, we are all compelling characters in the shared story of life. Please join me as I examine the literary, developmental, and cultural aspects of role-playing. And now, let's get to episode one of Role-Player with a Thousand Faces. Welcome to our first episode. As I mentioned in the intro, my name is Matt Jancic, and I've been playing RPGs for nearly 30 years. I first started as a player in a game of Tunnels and Trolls, a Dungeons and Dragons clone, that my buddy was running when we were 12. But my true interest in RPGs didn't peak until I bought the Robotech role-playing game published by Palladium Books in 1986, when I was 13. Until then, I'd only dabbled in RPGs, but it was my love for Robotech and the idea of being able to play in that world that really got me interested. Like many 13-year-olds, I hungered to someday embark on great adventures and quests and fed that hunger on a steady diet of science fiction and fantasy novels and just about anything that Stephen King put out. I also fed that hunger through writing short stories and attempting occasional novels, none of which I ever really completed. But the desire was there, and when I discovered that role-playing games combine the narrative aspects of storytelling in a format that seemed more immersive than in books and television, I was hooked. What could be better than getting together with friends on a Saturday night to eat pizza, drink soda, and live an adventure that was every bit as real and involving as anything in life? In addition to Robotech and Tunnels and Trolls, I moved on to other games such as Dungeons and Dragons, Rifts, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness, the original D6 version of Star Wars, and Cyberpunk 2020, among quite a few others. I moved equally between being a game master and a player, but secretly harbored a deep love for game mastering. There was something about controlling the narrative, weaving it in ways that took the players on a dynamic roller coaster ride. I loved to make them laugh, to thrill them, and to occasionally affect them. Whether I was any good at it or not is a matter of opinion, but the love was there, and I found myself thinking more and more about ways in which to improve my game. Why is it that we love to play role-playing games? What is it that they do to our brains that we choose to play an RPG on a Friday with friends rather than watch a movie or read a book? For anyone that's ever played an RPG, even on the most basic level, it's clear that they do affect us but do they have that same impact that a book or a film has on us? My intention with this series is to take a slightly more academic look at role-playing games from the perspective of a teacher and a storyteller, but also from the point of view of a common, everyday communicator. 
we convey information through stories each and every day of our lives, explaining to our significant other why we were late to dinner, or to our boss why we think it's better to go with plan A rather than plan B. We often struggle to convey our feelings to others and find ourselves at a loss for words and kick ourselves in the butt, metaphorically speaking, when we put our foot in our mouth, if I can use another metaphor. Is there something to the idea of using role-playing games to practice the most basic and important skill of all, that of communication? While I have a deep love for storytelling and narrative in general, and RPGs very specifically, I'm also interested in the ways in which they affect us as human beings, as individuals, and, dare I say it, as a culture. While I'm a teacher by trade, the big secret that teachers don't always admit is that we don't have all the answers. Rather, what we do have are a lot of questions to help lead not just students, but ourselves down the path to better understanding. I hope we have a lot of fun along the way. Learning should never stop, no matter how old we are, and I think that if we explore the ways in which RPGs work, we'll better understand how we work as individuals, and as a culture. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, though, I thought it would be useful and informative to put any terminology into the proper places, so that as we examine our topic, we have a common perspective and language with which to communicate. In this very first episode, we're going to look at the pieces of an RPG and see if we can figure out what exactly they are. In later episodes, we'll be taking a better look at these individual parts in an attempt to understand the medium a little bit better. So, let's get started. What is a role-playing game? I don't know about you, fellow role-player, but I get this question a lot when I'm either asked about what I do for a living or when I'm asked about how I chose to spend my Saturday night. The word role-playing seems to confuse or befuddle people. And if they have heard the term before, it's usually in connection with an article in Cosmopolitan magazine about how to spice up your sex life. Now, if you're like me, at a certain point you took to responding to the question of what role-playing games are with another question. Have you ever heard of Dungeons & Dragons? At which point you'd explain that Dungeons & Dragons is a role-playing game and that, while you don't really play that much D&D, you play other games that are similar to it. You play a game called Pathfinder, or you play a game called Numenera, or maybe you play Warhammer. Despite the fact that the asker of the question feels that they've had it answered, the meaning of what a role-playing game is remains unclear. Saying that role-playing games are games like Dungeons & Dragons is circular and doesn't actually define what a role-playing game really is. In fact, it's not really defining anything at all. If someone asked you what baseball is, you wouldn't say it's the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Boston Red Sox. That wouldn't really be explaining anything at all. But when seasoned role players are pressed for a deeper definition of what role-playing games are, we often stumble for words. We say they're storytelling games. They're games that involve dice or cards. They're about killing monsters and finding treasure. They're like movies, but they're interactive. None of those ideas are exactly right, but they're not exactly wrong, either. What they most certainly are not, however, is a definition. Perhaps, then, we need to break role-playing games down into their most vital components, and then dissect and discuss them in order to refine and improve our own definition. And so, let's take a look at what role-playing games are made of, and what they absolutely require in order to play. 
Perhaps by exploring this area, we'll be able to better define what it is that role-playing games are. The first and most obvious component that role-playing games require is people, and it's fairly safe to say that they require not just one, but at least two people. Anything less than two people, and you're telling a story out loud, or perhaps reading a choose-your-own-adventure novel, or playing a solo card game or a video game. But saying that we need at least two people to play a role-playing game isn't specific enough either. After all, we could have at least two people, one a teacher giving a lecture and the others the students listening to it, and we still wouldn't have a role-playing game. We could also have a CEO standing before her employees, explaining through a PowerPoint presentation how profits are down and how she's going to be shifting the way the company conducts business. In both of these examples, the two or more people each have roles, one as a speaker and the others as listeners. However, we both agree that these are not role-playing games. In a role-playing game, both participants are listeners and speakers, communicating back and forth, each one performing a certain function. The roles of each participant in a role-playing game are typically defined as the game master and the player, though depending on the specific game, those titles vary. The game master provides the framework of the setting, enforces the rules, and creates the catalyst for the narrative adventure. The player, on the other hand, performs the role of a character exploring the setting, and, using their own tools, tackles the challenges that come about from the narrative. This is a unique situation in that the game master and the player have an asymmetrical relationship. They perform different functions that play off of one another. One essentially creates the setting and the non-player characters that populate it, while the other performs the character that explores it. Neither necessarily has more power than the other, but instead there is a kind of yin and yang relationship that occurs, and in the balance between the two, a story happens. Unlike in most traditional games, in which competition occurs, the game master and the player are not adversaries. In sports, two teams face off against one another in order to score a point. Back and forth they go, up and down the field, each operating under the same terms. When a play is called into question, referees step in to make a ruling or call on whether a foot was out of bounds when a ball was caught. While game masters certainly make calls and rulings too, they do much, much more. While referees stay to the sides of the field, making sure that players play by the rules, a game master actually is the field. They describe the setting the non-player characters that inhabit it, and create the situations which helps to drive the story. The player, for their part, is not in competition necessarily with other players in the game. In fact, they are usually working together in order to solve the murder of a local government official, or find treasure hidden somewhere in the hills just outside of an ancient town, or perhaps even defuse a rivalry between street gangs of the future before a turf war erupts and devastates a neighborhood. With this in mind, it's fairly safe to say that the game master and the player actually collaborate to tell a story together. But how does one choose whether to be the game master or the player? Well, I don't know about you, but we usually choose to be the one that we find most pleasure in. As I mentioned in my introduction, I love creating worlds and situations that challenge my players. I love engaging them dropping breadcrumbs that put them on the edge of their seat and leave them wanting more and more story. Others enjoy the thrill of exploration and of discovery, 
the adrenaline rush of combat, or the drama and romance of an involving, complex story. We each have our reasons, and much of it is linked to the way we seek fulfillment through books, television, and movies. Only with a role-playing game, we are the story. When role-playing games are at their best and the participants are firing on all cylinders, there's a freewheeling, rapid-fire back-and-forth between game master and player. Participants on both sides become engaged as situations change and challenges develop. An immersive plot and involving story develops as the game goes on. But wait a minute. How is it that these situations and challenges develop? If none of these things are really happening, then how is it that they can move up and down? How do they move forward? How do stories unfold and develop over the course of the game? And exactly where is the game happening? So when you sit down to play a game of Monopoly, the players focus themselves around the board and measure their success based on the number of times they pass go, or how many properties they purchase, or how much money they accumulate in relation to other players. In a game of football, teams attempt to move a ball from one side of the field to the other and measure success in terms of the goals scored. Points. In a card game, players focus on the cards in their hand, ultimately deciding victory based on comparing one hand to another. In a video game, you keep track of images on a screen, passing checkpoints and accumulating points in order to know where you stand in that game. But where exactly does a role-playing game take place? We know that the role-playing game doesn't exist on paper. It doesn't exist on a television screen. It doesn't take place on a field. It doesn't exist on a hard drive somewhere, and you can't hit play to rewatch the events that have just taken place and make a call or a ruling on them, or even just to enjoy them one more time after the fact. The answer, it seems, is in the imagination, which is probably the single most key component in any role-playing game. The story created exists purely within the imagination of the participants, the game master, and the player. It's a one-time deal, and though some people like to take notes to keep track of what's happened, particularly game masters, once the game is over, it's over. It will never be repeated again. You could say that it has the beauty of an ice sculpture. It exists for a few hours, usually about four or five if you're playing a standard game, and then melts away. The field of the game is shifted from being a tactile one to being an ephemeral one that exists solely within the imaginations of the participants and nowhere else. Because of this, there needs to be a common understanding or a common language between the game master and the player in order to understand exactly what is going on. Right now, in this first episode, we're establishing some definitions and understandings between the two of us so that in later episodes, when we go deeper into the parts and pieces of the role-playing game, we'll be able to understand what it is we're talking about. In a role-playing game, the shared language that exists between the game master and the player are usually the rule set and the setting, which we will get into more in depth later. For now, though, let's just say that the imagination needs to be properly employed between both participants in the game. For example, in a game of Shadowrun, a game set in a blended fantasy cyberpunk world of the future, a player may describe their character as being a street punk troll covered in piercings and dressed from head to toe in leather that carries around a lead pipe slung across its back. 
While the fine details of that image may vary, almost certainly vary, from person to person, everyone that hears that description gets the broad strokes of what the character looks like. The player has decided to give the game master and the other players the most important strokes necessary for visualizing and understanding what the character looks like. These descriptions matter. Because later, when the game master describes a scene in that very same game in which the players are cornered in a rainy back alley by a hover car, its headlights blazing like spotlights, wiper blades squeaking and sweeping back and forth, back and forth, we can picture the framework of the scenario. Again, the details of what you and I just imagined might be different. Your alley might not look like mine. Your hover car might not look like mine. The way this, the blades sound squeaking and sweeping back and forth might be different between us. And in fact, they are most certainly different, but the broad strokes, the tip of the iceberg, is there and the thing that we have in common is the framework of the situation. Without this sort of framework of imagination, we can't communicate with one another. We can't understand each other's intentions and ideas. We need to understand the way the playing field looks like both in terms of geography and in terms of story. In this way, the player and the game master communicate in order to convey information flowing back and forth either from GM to player or player to GM. It is through this back and forth of imagination and communication that the playing field is established, situations arise, and then story happens. So, through the back-and-forth communicating of what's going on in our imaginations, we're actually able to build the story between participants. As I've mentioned previously, while other games might involve you shifting a piece on a game board, matching cards, or moving a ball from one side of the field to another, participants in a role-playing game need to communicate their ideas to one another. Without communication, the game can't proceed. This means that role-playing games are really about ideas and thoughts moving back and forth between at least two people in order to advance toward a common goal, which in many cases is simply to further the story, and at the same time trying to advance their own individual goals. The individual goals of the two participants, however, are quite different. The game master needs to create and set the framework of the playing field, as well as enforce the rules in order to ensure that the player can reach for their own individual goal, which is to overcome obstacles and navigate the setting. The common goal shared by the participants, though, is always to advance the story in one way or another. This leads to a usually unspoken understanding between the game master and the player. They are not in competition with each other, as we've already decided, but in fact working together to advance the story. In this respect, we find that the stories and adventures created within the scope of the game are not necessarily a simulation of reality. The game master, of course, is setting up mysteries to explore and obstacles to surmount for the player. And the player, for their part, is working towards solving those mysteries and overcoming those obstacles. If the characters are minding their own business while on a night out on the town, and a group of thugs enter the restaurant they are in and threaten the owner, there's a bit of an unspoken agreement between player and game master that their characters will intervene in the situation, and not simply duck out a side window and go looking somewhere else for adventure. On the other hand, there's an effort by the game master to hook the players and give them reason to actually intervene and stop those thugs. 
Perhaps one of the details that the game master communicates to the player is that one of the thugs has a tattoo on their arm identical to that of one of the characters. Drawing upon the player's description of the character earlier on in the game and how they describe that tattoo as being unique only to the tribe that they belong to. When that character notices that tattoo, they may feel compelled to intervene simply to figure it out why it is that a member of their tribe is threatening the owner. While someone unfamiliar with the game might mistake their relationship for one of an adversarial nature on the surface, within the context of the game it's actually a cooperative one in which the GM attempts to challenge the players and the players attempt to overcome the game master's challenges. Through this communicative back and forth, through listening as much as speaking, the player and the game master work together to further the story. Now, communication is the heart of everything we do. Whether we're explaining to our boss why the company should choose product A over product B, or to a police officer why it was that we were speeding. Now, we do this every day whether we know it or not. When we communicate our ideas in our everyday lives, we use a rule set commonly known as language. Here in America, in the United States, we use English. In France, they use French. In Japan, they use Japanese. And in various regions of the world, they use various languages. The terms and vocabulary that we use, even our intonation and way of delivering our thoughts, contain meaning that's commonly understood by another speaker fluent in the same language. While language exists on paper, when spoken, it exists nowhere but in the minds of the speaker and the listener. When I go to another country and attempt to speak English, there may be problems because the word for bathroom in my language is not the word for bathroom in another language. And even if I do speak that language, literally, there may be some more problems because I may not understand the context of what is being said. If you've seen the Guardians of the Galaxy films, you'll note that Drax the Destroyer, though he speaks English, has a lot of trouble wrapping his head around metaphors. This is an example of missing context, in which cultural differences between Drax and those around him leads to misunderstandings. And so, even in a role-playing game, we need to use a shared language and terminology. Because RPGs essentially exist in the mind, we need to be able to communicate in a way that keeps us on the same page of our shared imaginations. As I mentioned before, key verbal descriptions help us to do this, but if we don't know what's relevant and important in the game, then we don't have any idea of what we should be describing. At any given moment in the game, though there may be mystery, there should always be clarity. Without a proper frame framework, the two participants become lost and unable to properly communicate. With this in mind, the very first step in building a shared language and terminology between the participants is finding a rule set. At the moment, the predominant rule set that is most commonly known to players and the general public is, in fact, Dungeons & Dragons 5e. I'm not here to argue the benefits and drawbacks of this game being the most popular. That's for you to decide. What I will say, though, is that through Dungeons & Dragons, we built up a common vocabulary that we might not otherwise have. We all know what words like homebrew, critical, min-maxer, rules lawyer, and a host of others mean because they've entered into our shared language and understanding. A rule set works to establish the way in which game masters and players communicate back and forth. There is a difference in the way in which we communicate should the rule set happen to be the red box set, advanced Dungeons & Dragons, 3 or 3.5e, the much 
unfairly maligned 4, or the relatively new 5e. Each has a different way of helping to facilitate the way in which the game happens, and it stands to reason that each appeals to individuals in a different way. But now, that's not all, because for all the editions of Dungeons & Dragons that we have, there are countless other rule sets. There's the various versions of Shadowrun, and Cyberpunk, or the various versions of Warhammer. Each one of these rule sets works in a very different way, and in a way that, hopefully, enhances the role-playing experience. There are any number of rule sets out there to cater to the particular needs of the participants of a role-playing game. Some rule sets emphasize number crunching. Are you interested in the more mathematical probabilities of role-playing? Do you like tables and charts? Or are you interested in a more narrative approach that emphasizes story and character over rolling the dice? When you find a rule set that everyone can agree upon, this is like finding a common language that participants can speak with one another even though there may be that asymmetrical relationship between player and game master and even though player and game master may have different individual goals. Now, the style of rule set that you choose to play can run the gamut from super simple to super complex. I would actually argue that the simplest role playing rule set of all is one that each and every one of us has played. Our childhood rule set used in the backyard when we were five, six, or seven years old. This rule set is usually based on nothing more complex than an agreement that I am Spider-Man and you are Princess Leia. As incongruous as that pairing of characters seems, we all spend hours and hours of our childhoods playing with others under just those very same rules. A simple agreement between two people, the most universal rule set of all. The older we get, however, perhaps the more we demand some sort of structure or some sort of complexity in order to make things more fun. Though I'm sure there are people out there that would have lots of fun just sitting around making stories up together with nothing more than that simple agreement, more often than not, we require rules in order to create challenges that must be navigated. Rule sets in a game become something that we lay over our imaginations in order to provide structure. There are so many rule sets out there, and each one emphasizes a different way of role-playing. Whatever rule set that is chosen, it's essential that the player and the game master find one that they both not just understand, but also enjoy. Will you use Eric Woodsick's Amber Diceless Roleplay or Monty Cook's Numenera? Are we going with Cyberpunk or Cyberspace? Will you play Warhammer, Fantasy Age, or Dungeons & Dragons? Though the settings may be similar, the rule sets use different ways to arrive at different outcomes, and matching the sorts of stories and games which you want to play to the proper rule set is often critical in enjoyment of the game. Another critical element in a role-playing game is establishing the mood and the tone. The broadest and most basic way to set mood and tone in a role-playing game is through the choice of genre. If the participants decide on a science fiction game, then they have a basic understanding of how the game will be different than a cyberpunk game. If the participants decide to play within the realm of medieval fantasy, then it's going to have a different look and feel than historical horror. When I say each one of these words, like the framework of description used to help us understand what your character looks like, you get a certain image, the tip of the iceberg, in your mind. Now, once again, we may have had very different images in our head when I said these different genres, but the framework was there. When I say cyberpunk, chances are that you picture concrete and steel, densely packed, sprawling cities, 
dark skies, and endless amounts of rain. If I say science fiction, you probably imagine the immaculate, clean corridors of a starship 500 years in the future. When I say historical horror, you may envision a colonial-style house somewhere in New England in the fall or winter of the 1700s. And if I describe a medieval setting, you can smell the dirt, feel the cold, and taste the blood. But knowing the genre isn't really enough to play a game because even genres have flavors in and of themselves. The movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, is science fiction. But then again, its underrated sequel, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, is science fiction too. They're both of the same genre, but they have a very different look and feel about them. And so, working in tandem with the rule set, and somewhere beneath the umbrella of the genre, is the setting, which creates a more specific mood and tone and therefore a more specific framework for any given game. If rule sets are where we start when we're trying to establish how conflict is resolved and how we define our characters and the way they interact with the world, then setting is where we start to define the look and feel, the flavor and personality of the world which we are inhabiting. It is the basic foundation on top of which we establish our world, build our characters, and therefore propel our narrative. Like colors, the rule sets, the genre, and the setting should complement each other, working in conjunction with one another to create a flavor, as well as a look and a feel that is unique to each game and makes the players feel as if they are actually there, to immerse them. The game master helps to establish the setting, but the behavior of the characters helps to establish it as well. You probably couldn't picture Lieutenant Ripley or any of the other characters from the Alien series existing within the bounds of Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. But you might actually be able to picture her in Peter Hyam's 2010 The Year We Make Contact, which only goes to prove my point that 2001 and 2010, while existing within the same genre and within the same universe, do have very different looks and feels. For a good example of how genre, setting, and rule sets work in different ways, given different combinations, it's probably fruitful to take a look at the original edition of Palladium Books' Rifts role-playing game set in the Palladium Megaverse. The original Rifts was based around a D20. No, not that D20 system. A different D20 system. And sprinkled in a percentile system to resolve conflict and combat. It was very numbers-heavy, and some might even argue that it was clunky, though, truth be told, a lot of games back then were clunky simply because we're looking back at them through the lens of a time when it's considered better to have simpler, in air quotations, sy systems. When you compare the Palladium Rifts of 30 years ago to the Rifts of today, using the Savage Worlds rule set, they're like night and day. Though the settings are identical, the ways in which conflict is resolved are very, very different. What took endless minutes of grinding away with the old Palladium rule set is now over in a few quick, exhilarating bursts with the Savage World system. Which one is better? Well, I'm not going to tell you, because it depends on how you interpret the Rifts universe. Another classic example, and perhaps one of the most famous and hotly debated examples of all time, is the Star Wars role-playing game which has had no less than three different rule sets in its time. There was the first, original rule set from West End Games, based around a D6 mechanic. Next came the Wizards of the Coast version, based around a D20 mechanic. Yes, that D20. 
And then finally, and most recently, has come the Fantasy Flight version, based around Fantasy Flight's narrative dice mechanic. Which one is better? That's not for me to tell you, because better depends on how you interpret the setting of Star Wars. Are you going for a looser, more swashbuckling feel? You may wish to use the D6 version, then. Are you more interested in the nitty-gritty details of hardware, spaceships, and of the Force? Well, then you might want to try the D20 version. Or, are you more interested in the storytelling aspects of the game, where the results of roles are not so black and white, but can be interpreted by the Game Master kind of like tea leaves? Depending on the way in which you interpret the Star Wars universe, you may have a very different idea of what the Star Wars setting should be, and therefore what rule set to play in conjunction with it. Now, we've determined that setting is rooted in genre, and predominantly created and controlled by the Game Master, but we've also brought up the fact that players can help set the tone of the setting through their own characters. Let's take a look at how that happens. Though we have now established the ideas and terminology of the playing field, the framework of genre, setting, and rule sets, we must remember that these are all basically static components. None of them cause any friction with the other, in fact they simply exist as a backdrop waiting for things to happen within them. Like dusty props and abandoned sets in a darkened theater, they need characters to populate them and bring them to life. Characters are the one single tool that a player has at their disposal in order to affect the setting. They are the pieces that a player places on a playing field created by the Game Master. When characters meet the setting and the inhabitants of it, sparks fly and both participants, the Game Master and the player, turn to the rule set in order to determine the outcomes of conflict, whether it be physical or cerebral, thus advancing the story. Characters are created by the player, usually with the Game Master present, and represent the role that they will take on within the bounds of the setting. They often emphasize the qualities that a player wishes to explore in the story. Think of characters as a set of smaller, personal rules for the player that enable them to interact with the setting in order to move the story forward. Depending on the game in which you're playing and the rule sets that compose it, characters can vary. Like rule sets, characters can be complex or simple and affect how the player express themselves within the game. Games like the previously mentioned Amber Diceless Roleplay, created by Eric Wudzik, are painted in very broad strokes, and therefore push the burden of becoming the character onto the players, thus creating a more narratively driven game. In Amber, players take on characters composed of four simple attributes, Psyche, Strength, Endurance, and Warfare, each with a score or rank. Depending on the conflict that they face within the game, the game master and player utilize one attribute or another to resolve the conflict. If two characters are fighting physically, they may look at strength or warfare, depending on which the GM and player agree are most suited to the situation. If two characters are haggling over the price of food in a market, then they may choose to use Psyche to determine the outcome of the conflict. Amber uses a relatively simple system. And the reason for that is because the creator was trying to emphasize narrative over resolution of conflict through numbers. The creator wanted players to talk it out, to discuss the situations which they were in, and resolve them in this way. Amber Diceless Roleplay was actually based on Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber, a book series in which politics played a huge role in the story. By choosing to keep the mechanics of the characters simple, the creator of the game was able to immerse players in the world of Amber, where combat was not the predominant way of settling conflict. 
Probably one of the more interesting character creation systems out there right now is Monty Cook's Cypher system, which uses only three simple stats, might, speed, and intellect, and develops characters in a way that relies on narrative concepts. Instead of explaining that you have a level 3 warrior, players describe their characters with a simple sentence. For example, a doomed warrior who fuses mind and machine, the abilities and personality of the character are all encoded into that one simple sentence. The other participants know that the character is doomed, that they're a warrior, and that their ability is to somehow fuse mind and machine. Even if they don't know the exact details of each one of those qualities, they can still quickly imagine how it is that the character plays. In this way, the actual characters themselves shift the system away from complex conflict resolution and more toward narrative. Other games, such as the first edition of Warhammer Fantasy, or Shadowrun, emphasize characters that are considered to be crunchy, meaning that they are heavy on math. Resolution does not come so easily as comparing numbers and ranks. In games like Warhammer Fantasy or Shadowrun, players crunch as many bonuses and penalties together as they can, stacking one on top of another in order to raise their own abilities and lower their opponent's abilities in order to overcome conflict. But characters are about more than just attributes and numbers, and this is where the role in role-playing comes in. Characters are also about their backgrounds and personalities, which serve to add flavor. In fact, I would argue that this is the real way in which character and setting more often collide. Along with creating stats, attributes, and skills for a character, a player must also create their background and personality, usually based on the issues that the player is most interested in playing out and exploring. Some players prefer to create characters similar to themselves and personality, while others enjoy creating characters very different than who they are. And so, players often take on the roles of superheroes, or even supervillains, but sometimes players like to play in a more subtle way, and just enjoy playing characters with a different personality. An ordinarily boisterous and real-life player might roleplay a shy wallflower within the bounds of a horror game. A man may explore what it's like to be a woman within the world of a cyberpunk setting. And, while this of all, a player may explore what it's like to be an alien or a robot something completely different than anyone has ever imagined before. In each case, the player is forced to rethink their approach to the world around them. In the same way that a novel does not always reflect the personal beliefs of a writer, or the character in a film does not represent the beliefs of the actor, so too is it that characters do not always represent the beliefs of the player. Part of the fun of a role-playing game is in pretending to be someone that you are not doing things you ordinarily wouldn't do, and exploring ideas you might not otherwise. Another type of character, one which I've been referring to but haven't really explained, is one created by the Game Master, the non-player character, or the NPC as they're often referred to. You can probably guess why they're called a non-player character, and that is because they're not played by players. They're played by the Game Master. They serve to stand in for the inhabitants of a world and are designed to look, feel, and react in a way that serves to stay true to the setting. If the participants are playing in 1700s New England, then non-player characters will reflect this. NPCs are an extension of the setting and represent another very direct way in which players make contact with the framework of the setting. In the same way that characters might drive the story, NPCs decorate the landscape to give it life and color. Speaking of contact between the characters and setting, I think we finally come full circle. 
Let's end here by summarizing everything that we've covered and see if we've come any closer to defining exactly what a role-playing game is. First off, we've determined that a role-playing game takes place between at least two participants, one taking on the role of the game master and the other taking on the role of the player. In doing so, the game master and the player work toward their own individual goals, even while reaching for a shared goal. While both serve different functions in the game, their relationship is not adversarial, but instead collaborative and asymmetrical. Together, their back and forth serves to propel the story forward. The game master sets the field based on the rule set and setting, and the players develop characters that fit in with the setting and are constructed using that rule set. In the same way that the look and feel, the tone and flavor of the setting and rule set fit the game, so too should the characters fit. Together, the game master and the player or players communicate back and forth, picturing the playing field in their mind's eye and using a shared language and terminology in order to keep their imaginations relatively aligned. While many fine details of the setting, the inhabitants, and of the characters may be slightly different in the minds of the participants, the game master and the player do their best to describe what something looks like, what's happening, or what their character is doing in a way that emphasizes the most important pieces of information, the tips of the iceberg, that are necessary to keep the story moving forward. In so doing, all participants in the role-playing game are able to weave together a narrative, which is interrupted occasionally by conflict, which is in turn resolved through the rule set of the game, as well as the player's peace on the playing field of the setting, their character. Using the personalities and the attributes of character, the game master and the player are able to resolve conflict and then continue moving the story forward based on the outcome. Wow, that's quite a bit different than saying that a role-playing game is Dungeons and Dragons, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I feel a lot better now about defining and describing role-playing games. I think I'll be more prepared the next time someone asks me what it is that I do, or what it was that I did last Saturday with my friends. To be honest, though, we've just scratched the surface. In future episodes of this show, we'll take a closer look at each and every one of those components, really breaking them down into their nitty-gritty parts. Well, that's it for episode one of Role Player with a Thousand Faces. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send your comments and questions about role-playing games to mythandledgerdomain at gmail.com. That's myth, as in mythology, and ledgerdomain, as in trick of the hand. Once again, that's mythandledgerdomain at gmail.com. Role Player with a Thousand Faces is presented by Manufactured Myth and Ledger Domain, a Boston RPG company. Our music is by E. John Stone. I'm Matt Yancic, and thank you for listening.